your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, it was a rainy day in Idaho, USA on April 10th, 2018, just last year. My sister had just come home from work and from being in the rain, and she was getting out of her wet clothes. Glenn, my brother-in-law, had been making gumbo yummo for dinner. <laughs> well, Mary began heading over to the kitchen when she saw Glenn hunched over in the den chair. Well, something was wrong, and he just didn't look right. Mary approached him, calling his name. Glenn! Glenn! But she couldn't get any response. She saw that he was not breathing and was starting to turn blue. Remembering that Christmas night when my dear dad had stopped breathing and how my niece, brother, and husband began CPR immediately, Mary did the same for Glenn. Glenn is a survivor of a massive heart attack, CPR, bypass surgery, over three weeks of being comatose, and weeks and weeks of keeping up a positive attitude. Go, Glenn! Yes, yes. Well, Glenn shared with me that his very good friend, former CID agent and Vietnam vet, Stuart Scott, wrote some books in which Glenn had been reading. The books brought joy and laughter to Glenn. I had no idea about Stuart's life. Well, Stu, thank you so much for being there for Mary and Glenn through the years, and especially this past year. It's Glenn's anniversary of new life this week. Well, what a perfect time to launch this episode. Federal CID agent turns author, writing provides outlet for PTSD issues, Stuart L. Scott. I stopped suffering in silence. Well, hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint, and my featured guest is Stu, Stuart L. Scott. He is sitting right here in front of me, which is really exciting, Stuart L. Scott. Stuart, hello. Good morning. <laughs> I have been looking over your books, and they're, they're very exciting. I, I was having a conversation with you just a few minutes ago. These books, I, I first want, would like you to just give the names of the titles, the first book is a novel. It's a historical romance, and the title of the novel is Prisoners of War. The second book is a collection of short stories, and its title is Gritty, Grizzly, and Greedy, stories inspired by true crooks and crimes from my 28 years as a Fed. So that has 13 short stories in there. So those are the two titles. Of the, of the books that you're looking at we're going to talk about today. Okay, well thank you. And I want to back up really far because some of, as I was looking at the books back in the back about the author, you talk about some of your work that inspired you to write these books. And so what I'd like you to kind of share with, with your positive imprint is you worked for the Criminal Investigation Command, which is a part of the United States. It's kind of like a FBI. And you had some incredible experiences that actually, through the years of you learning about yourself and how you fit in, you came upon the writing of these books. So talk about your life with the Department of the Army. Sure. I... Um... I served, I enlisted in the United States Air Force and served during Vietnam and then got out as the Vietnam War was winding down and had a number of other professional experiences, some work as a reserve police officer. I got into corrections work with juveniles and then adults. And ultimately, I was uh, not conned, but 
persuaded to go back in the Army Reserve <laughs> into the Army Criminal Investigation Command, which is the FBI for the Army. Not as famous as uh, Jethro Gibbs's uh, NCIS, but, but well known. So I did that between 1980 and 2003 when I retired. And during that time, I had a variety of experiences stationed in different places. Among the things that may be of interest to the listeners is between 1989 and 2001, I was heavily involved with uh, the Protective Service Unit, which if uh, anybody has ever seen the Secret Service we're the counterparts, and so we were the personal security officers guarding dignitaries, the Secretary of Defense. So I've been involved in guarding Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Myron Cohen. Wow. Oh, my gosh. All over the world, as well as other people. Um, worked with General Powell once and, and uh, General Shelley Kashvili and different people. So we would guard the Secretary of Defense, the Chief of Staff, um, the Secretary of the Army, and foreign counterparts. So I had done that all over the world, including the Middle East, been to Egypt, been to Israel, been to uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, South America with Donald Rumsfeld, and a number of trips to the homes of presidents. So I took Mr. Cheney to Ronald Reagan's home, which uh, maybe the most interesting part of that was if you can remember the old TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies. Reagan's next door neighbor was the big mansion that was the exterior of the Beverly <laughs> Hillbillies. But, uh, and we also went to uh, former President Ford's home. What were your experiences like? This is, this is very interesting. So you were conned, or so to speak, into <laughs> joining this service. and. Right. You obviously liked it because you were in the service from for over 20 years. Yes. Uh-huh. Doing this and what were your feelings? Let's start with your feelings first. What kind of what were your feelings like? Did you have to have a a certain type of ego for this job or a stamina? I I never asked myself there. You have to be able to follow directions. You have to be able to understand the goal, and especially in the protective service work, and, and in the protective service work, it's not like the movies. Um, it, it's not Kevin Costner protecting Whitney Houston. I loved that and movie. <laughs> that's, that's right, and you're not doing karate yells or anything. What you're doing is, if necessary, like the Secret Service, you're the person that has to take the bullet, but it's protecting the principal. So it might be covering somebody's body, it's pushing them into the limousine and just trying to engineer environments so that you don't need to put yourself or the principal at risk. So it's a lot of... Quick thinking. Uh, quick thinking, planning, and I suppose that maybe the key word would be judgment, knowing what to do or, or what not to do. So it's it's the same type of shooter, don't shoot questions that police officers face all of the time. In terms of being a, a, a special agent, the Army CID is a very small command. There's about 600 credentialed agents worldwide. So there was a little bit of cachet to it. It, it meant something. But 
I was called back to active duty two times, the first for the first Gulf War, and I spent about 15 months on active duty. And one of the cases that ended up being brought up in a short story, and I'll describe how it was perhaps instrumental in getting me involved in writing, was I was sent to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And one of the crimes I investigated was the lead investigator on the scalding assault of a child. If any of your readers have, are familiar with a lot of writers that write about police, I'm thinking of, for instance, Joseph Wambaugh, who wrote about the L.A. police. Lots of folks have some case or cases that haunt them in a way you can't get out of. And it was very difficult to be interviewing the parents and doing things like talking to the doctors and getting the pictures of this scalded little boy and interviewing the mother and measuring the water temperature that had come out of the taps and things like that. But I had a number of instances there, both in my days as a, uh, a federal probation and parole agent for the Department of Justice and in the Army. And so ultimately, uh, while getting some services with the VA after I retired from the Army late in 2003, um, I was introduced to a therapeutic modality and it's called journaling. And it's something that there's many ways to deal with PTSD issues. And PTSD comes lots of people in lots of different ways. It's not just the military. But writing down and getting feelings out so that you're not alone in sharing things with people. So journaling was very helpful to me. And that's one of the things that got me involved with writing. And a number of the incidents, including the case of the scalded little boy, ended up being referenced in some of the writing that I've, I've done. So that kind of ties some of those things together. The PTSD that you were experiencing, you were able to, you journaled, which obviously helped you, but now that you've put it into a form of a book, which is out on the bookshelves, how is, do you feel like that has even helped more? Because you feel like in between the lines, people can see your PTSD? You know, it, I hadn't thought of it that way. It might be, and besides the journaling for myself, I also sought out some additional counseling, and it, it's a, a specific technique developed at Stanford that has to do with dealing with recurrent uh, unpleasant thoughts, things that you can't control. And there's an acronym for that which at, at the moment eludes me. It's ED. MS, I think. Again, I perceived a need and I saw no reason if there was some help out there. Uh, suffering in silence doesn't get you anything. So the writing was one way I dealt with it and getting more counseling to deal with the intrusive thoughts was a, another thing. And between those two, these are things that really are not problematic for me anymore, I'm very happy to say. And it's, you know, it's so gratifying. And one of the other stories I told you is that I'd also been a commercial winemaker for 28 years. And so one of the most flattering things that can happen is when strangers are willing to give you money for something you did. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And that includes buying a copy of one of your books, buying a, a bottle of your wine, buying some of the, uh, the glass artwork that I do. All of those things are just very reinforcing. And uh, I guess maybe because I was an only child, I, I really like praise. So there you have it. That's my confession on that. Well, that's, that's very interesting, and, and I'm anxious to complete these books, but I'm also, your, your life is, is just full of interesting, but a lot of positive imprints, and also people who have been a positive imprint on you, so that you can actually become the person you are, and do all of these things, such as your wine making, and your glass, and your writing. There's a lot of great connections you've made along the way, too. I want to go now to this prisoner of war book. You you said just a few minutes ago that there are some things in this book that are part of you. Obviously, any writer that writes a book, a lot of it is going to be part of them. Tell us about this book and what kind of, maybe not general generalities, but what kind of transformations were made in writing the book with your experiences? Sure. Two things that are probably central to the writing of the book. In a way, it's a compilation of my story and some family stories. And what I mean by that is that my parents, as younger people before they were married, happened to be at significant places just accidentally. And some examples that Unfortunately, we're not good with history as a society, and a lot of things are lost. But two quick examples. Maybe you've heard of, or a true event was that in February of 1942, a Japanese submarine came up in the Santa Barbara Channel, very close to the coast, and shelled an oil field in Santa Barbara. My mother happened to be a secretary in the office of the oil company, so that's something that's lost. The following day, there's an event called the Battle of Los Angeles. Again, little known now. The Battle of Los Angeles is the largest loss of life on the continent during World War II. What happened is very primitive radar following the attack by the Japanese the previous day. The radar said the Japanese planes are coming. They feared a repeat of Pearl Harbor. They blacked out the entire Los Angeles area, the San Fernando Valley, and fired over 1,400 anti-aircraft shells into the air. Falling shells destroyed a number of homes, killed three people, and three other people died of heart attacks. My mother was there for that. Simultaneously, the man that my mother married had a cafe on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. He had told me, and my mother had agreed and they and both of my parents ended up turns out they came from the same little towns in northern Nevada. In the book I'm trying to establish and give us an idea of just how scared the public could be, which enabled us to do something as unpleasant and unkind as incarcerating hundred and twenty thousand of our own citizens. You have to understand the times. So part of the things that are lost now is the signs in stores that said things like no dogs or japs allowed. The fact that until it wasn't the summer of 1942, 
that the American government and the American public did not absolutely believe that we were going to be invaded. And the plan at that time, according to both my parents and my grandparents, was depending on where the Japanese landed, we'd stop them at the Grand Canyon or the Sierra Nevadas. So if you think about what will give you pause and, and just realize that there was no stopping an enemy except by a natural barrier, that's pretty scary stuff. That is, even today. Sure. So I took great pains to research and make sure that all of the information in the book is historically accurate. Two other quick family stories is I was engaged to marry a, a very lovely Oriental woman and that didn't work out uh, in large measure because of my behavior, but <laughs> it, it didn't work out. And so this being a story of a Japanese-American girl and an American boy and, and what happens to their love story, and we expand and look at the topic of what would you be willing to do if the person you love the most in the world were sent to prison by your government for the crime of being Japanese. So that's what's investigated. One of the settings is at the naval weapons plant at Keyport, Washington that produced our torpedoes. And I picked that site because my uncle, when he was drafted, and he had come, he was a machinist with the Western Pacific Railroad, was sent to work and spent the war building torpedoes there. So that's, that's the site of part of the story. But it includes my story. We've changed the time and the place more because uh, some of the people and some of the, the character-based folks are still living, and so it was respectful to them to set a different time and place. But that's the story of prisoners of war. Well, you're very dignified in telling this story. It warms my heart. Thank you. Uh, listening, and I feel like I should be, you know, <laughs> doing more for you, uh, just with the services that you've provided, you know, for our country for so many years. This is this is truly, truly an honor to be here and to be here in person. That's your fiction book, and and now aside from your heart being broken with the loss of your love, have you ever been injured in the line of duty? Uh, Nothing serious. Fortunately, fortunately not. I've, I've been very lucky in all of my careers that I've never had to fire my gun. I've almost done that. And of course, part of, like we talked about with the protective service work, it's, it's about good judgment and knowing what not to do. And sometimes not doing something is better than, than doing something. So been very lucky in that regard. And then now we're moving forward and you worked in the, let's see, you were a probation officer? Federal probation officer and simultaneously a federal parole agent. And when I started that in 1975 in San Francisco, they were two separate agencies, the Department of Justice and the federal court. And I started in San Francisco and had been involved in writing the sentencing reports and sometimes doing supervision on some people that you may be familiar with, including I was one of the, uh, the authors that worked on the Patty Hearst investigation. Sarah Jane Moore, who took a shot at uh, 
our president. And then I came to Idaho and I was involved in the Randy Weaver case. Uh, I thought that I would be leaving something complicated in California and coming to a, a quieter backwater and rocked into the middle of all of the Aryan nations. So I, I provided supervision and did investigative work and Richard Butler, the leader of the Aryan nations. I did the sentencing report on one of uh, the two men that killed uh, Daniel Berg, the uh, Denver talk show host who was uh, Jewish faith. He was killed. I'd interviewed uh, Robert Matthews, the founder of the Order, so I'd been very involved with different people, was involved with uh, Timothy Boyce, who was memorialized in the movie The Falcon and the Snowman, things like that. So have come across some cases or been involved with things that have been in the public eye from time to time. Wow, now that must have been, was it, well, to me, that would be stressful. Was that a stressful job? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it, it was, and that's part of and a lot of those things. And when earlier I said PTSD, folks just associate that with, with combat veterans. But there's lots of ways so that all kinds of first responders also have PTSD issues. And I'm sure people in vastly different and unrecognized aspects of life uh, a lot of parents have it, but it's just, it shows itself in many different ways. With me, it was intrusive thoughts and what's called hypervigilance. Just always sitting with my back to something and keeping my eyes moving and not being very, very trustful. But those were just how things manifested for me. So there's, there's lots of different ways, but many of those things as a federal agent, and I always ended up working alone and dealing with people that, uh, you know, some of the folks had made mistakes, and I guess part of what I learned is that there was a segment of the folks that I dealt with that realized their mistake and weren't going to do it again, and so there I was kind of doing a monitoring function. There was an equal segment that if... Uh, if Jesus Christ came down and touched them directly on the forehead, they still wouldn't have gotten any better. That was also monitoring and more surveillance. And so who I focused on was the 40% in the middle that could go either way. And trying to be not just a policeman, but also there if and when they wanted assistance so I could be a resource person. So I wasn't going to be their counselor, but when these 40% of the people that could go either way perceived that in their own mind, their life wasn't working. I was able to assist them in getting whatever they needed. It might be substance abuse counseling, it might be financial counseling, it might be uh, mental health issues, any of those things. And that's where I gave my emphasis. So I found at the end of my 23 careers as a probation and parole agent, that it was very much a close to being a loving but strict parent. You had to deal with everybody on an individual basis and you didn't, you know, one size didn't fit all. You weren't trying to catch them and you weren't trying to excuse them. And so now 
Uh, I'm currently involved one day a week. I do volunteer work with a local recovery center here in town. And there it's peer counseling with folks that have substance abuse issues, mental health issues. And one of the reasons I do that is I absolutely believe that the idea that, uh, listen, we're going to lock those people up, we're going to send them away, and that's going to make society a better place and make me safer. Plainly put, that absolutely doesn't work because there's very few people I've dealt with who don't come back to the same place where they were when they committed their crimes. Everybody comes back, and if they do come back, it's then a question of, did they come back better able to function in society or not. And if you want to make people better at society without necessarily excusing them, you can't just lock them up. You have to deal with their issues. And even if uh, people still have problems, because we're all fallible human beings, if you can make them a little bit more functional in society, ultimately, because they're still our neighbors, we're still seeing them. That's better for all of us. So I'm trying to actually practice that by being involved and, you know, I give them, uh, I make donations, but the biggest thing I can do is actually support the work by giving them my time. And I've been doing that for about two and a half years. That's great. What a positive imprint and that you've been for the community, the global community. And now you're taking all of what you did for so many years and you're still applying it and being that positive imprint here within your own community. And I, I thank you for that. Here's a very personal question. You're good at your service. You are good at leaving this positive imprint wherever you go. Do you feel that, that you didn't get what you wanted out of a personal life because you were busy, and I wouldn't, I don't want to say the word busy, but because you were providing your services to others your entire working career. Do you feel shorted that you didn't get your personal life the way you wanted it, or is this the way you wanted it? Absolutely not. Um, I've been very lucky. I'm married to the same wonderful woman for 45 years, and she is also a beauty, so I don't know why <laughs> Beautiful women are, are hanging out with me, but I've been lucky in that <laughs> in that regard. And uh, I've been involved with raising four kids, and uh, nobody's on anybody's caseload, so that's all good. One of my experiences was um, I was diagnosed and had stage 3 cancer when I was 41. Having that experience and coming in direct contact with my mortality probably made me a lot nicer person and caused me to slow down and out of all bad things can come some good. But uh, no, I don't think I've missed out. And uh, you know, I, if I had a, a time machine, I would certainly undo some things and I have some regrets about mistakes I made. But at the same time, I had no idea that I would be a retired winemaker and retired federal agent in, in Moscow, Idaho, who was a glass artist and an author and, and these things. So, you know, life is uh, just the way it is and it unfolds one day at a time. And we plan and try and control things as much as we can. And that's involved in how my wife and I are 
living our life now and trying to have a balance of traveling and having some fun in our day-to-day life. No, I, I look forward to continuing with what I'm doing and, and changing and being creative and doing some things that leave an imprint. And that may be a theme to the glass art, which you've seen and the books, is being involved with people in corrections. It's important, but it doesn't leave a tangible or visible reference of what you did. And so everybody is not concerned about the last case that you had and and how good things were. It was, what are you doing now? So what I'm doing now are things that are creative, but also a little bit more enduring because they have a physical presence. And that might be... uh, establishing a bit of a legacy for me and that would that would be nice to be well thought of and have the generations to follow uh, my kids and my grandkids be be proud of me that would be that would be very nice well i'm proud of you and the listeners are thrilled and i think the listeners would love to hear some of what you've written that would be a pleasure for me. That. Shall we do the novel first or Let's short Let's do the story? novel first. Let's do the novel first. Okay. Just a couple of quick parts. And as... And just so listeners know, this is coming from Prisoners of War. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the very first page. And this is what writers call the hook. And it's what you do to try and get people to continue reading. And so the heading at the top of the paragraph says, San Francisco, 1981. A knock at my front door interrupted the six o'clock news. My stomach contracted and my breathing slowed. Today could be the day, the day that my past finally catches up with me. I listen for the sound of heavy boots on the stairs, for the righteous pounding on the door, for the deep authoritative voice calling my name. I already knew how I could have been found out. With all these years to think about my crime, I'd realized my one mistake. Had they finally followed the faint, dusty trail I'd left in my wake? I'd spent 35 years living with guilt about the damage I'd done and the men I may have killed. The fear of discovery left my soul and psyche brittle. Paperboy, collecting for the Chronicle. False alarm, this time anyway. What filled my own head, though, were flashbacks during the day and dreams at night. Fifty-plus years of memories so vivid, so acute, I can't escape them any longer. I remember one particular Saturday evening. In a mere 25 days, I'd be married. Life seemed good, if not perfect, as I tapped the ashes from my pipe and closed out the day. December 6th. 1941. So that's just what I can do. So we know that the protagonist has done something Mm -hmm. that he's not proud of, that he worries that he's going to be caught. And also we've set the place in the setting, the west coast of California, just prior to the beginning of the Second World War. So we'll skip ahead a little bit. This is going to be when we introduce the protagonist. This is San Bruno, California. San Bruno is now the home of YouTube is there. (laughs) And it's the town where I grew up, 10 miles south of San Francisco. 
I was a war baby, an only child. I'm Patrick Ellsworth McBride, born in 1920, almost exactly one year after my father came home from the war in Europe and married my mom. I grew up in San Bruno, a quiet suburb 10 miles south of San Francisco. At the north end of San Bruno, on the east side of the El Camino Real, was the Tanforan Racetrack. The 12th Naval District Headquarters was directly across the street. Tanforan's huge grandstand backed on the El Camino. Red, white, and blue pennants flew from what seemed like a million flagpoles lining the roof high above the chain-link fence that enclosed the grounds. When I was old enough to ride a two-wheeler, I'd leave home and ride my bike around town, turning at the tree-lined border of the naval property. I loved to ride under the canopy of tall, fragrant eucalyptus that stood at regular intervals along the route. On the opposite side of the road lay barren ground, stretching north as far as I could see. The gentle roll of the ground, bright orange with California poppies, reminded me of a poem that my father recited to me. In Flanders' field, the poppies below. Dad always followed the first line with a long pause. Where's Flanders, Dad? It's a place in Belgium I saw before you were born, son. The poem was written by a pal of mine, Johnny McRae. He died in the war. I'd ride all around the outside of the naval property and then turn south towards home. I'd stay on the wide, flat surface of the El Camino and follow it to my right turn at Genevan Avenue. Sakai's garden shop and nursery marked the corner. Then we'll continue a little bit and we're going to jump up to 1926. On September 10th, 1926, Mom drove me to my first day of school. Her hand on my shoulder, we walked from the car to the door of the school. She asked if I could remember to take bus number two home. I told her I would remember which bus to take. However, by the end of my first day, my mind went blank as I stood outside the school looking at the long line of buses. Mrs. Haley, my teacher, crouched down and looked into my panicked face. Where do you live, honey? I was momentarily struck mute. I knew the answer, but a little round-faced girl spoke first. All I could do was stare down at the folded cuffs of my new Farrah blue jeans. He lives on Chestnut Street, volunteered her small voice. Ah, is that right, Mrs. Haley asked me. I nodded, and she led me by the hand to bus number two. My helper followed, getting on the same bus. We sat side by side. As the bus drove along, I studied our route, trying to find comfort in familiar streets. Occasionally, I'd glance over at my companion. The pink ribbons in her hair matched the pink of her dress. Her shoes were white Mary Janes, and her socks had little pink ruffles. Her name was Beatrice Sakai. She showed me where to get off at the Cherry Street stop. My sitter's home was in sight, just two houses up Cherry Street. I watched Bee walk another block up to Maple Street and vanish. Somehow Bee knew me, but I didn't know her. So part of what you've seen there is we introduce the female lead. We talk about Tanforan because Tanforan was the place to where all of the Japanese Americans from the peninsula in San Francisco surrendered. They were housed in converted horse stalls 
until they were deported. Most of the Japanese from the Bay Area went to uh, a camp in Utah. However, the Sakai family ended up going to a camp in Northern California called Thule Lake. There were a total of 10 internment camps for Japanese Americans, and also we incarcerated Koreans at that time too. It's little known. At Thule Lake, besides being one of the 10 uh, internment camps, was the one segregation camp. So if you were a Japanese American who for some reason was felt to be a danger or non-compliant, you were sent to a camp within a camp, which was a barbed wire enclosure guarded by the army. And so that's where uh, the love of Pat's life and her family are going to end up. Why? For the crime of being Japanese. We're introducing the site and, as I said when we spoke before, just trying to have people understand how scared the level of fear, and unfortunately politicians still find that if you can't sell things by selling sex, fear is the other evergreen, the way to sell things. And uh, yeah, who thought we might be seeing that again today? But it, this <laughs> yeah. is, uh, it's a cautionary tale. Okay, very interesting. And I will talk about the books here in a minute. And so we're gonna go to this one, which is this, a humorous did you or there are humorous ones and as i said i would let you pick and as an author and i first i worked on the novel and they were sort of going on simultaneously but i ought to be able to evoke a number of different emotions well the titles just the titles itself definitely invoke different emotions i was looking at these titles uh, earlier i mean you have things mm -hmm. like the there it was yes the tooth fairy a story as cold as a spokane winter about what happens when a crook chooses the wrong victim and i thought this one was interesting so uh, idaho catch and release Husband and wife pornographers who give a new meaning to what's really a crime. <laughs> so, uh, and then the Grand Tetons, the Texas bank robber who carries twin 38s. Some of them definitely sound humorous, and some of them sound like, what is this crook up to? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, oh good. I like the Tooth Fairy a lot, and it's a story to where ultimately evil does get punished. Actually, this is the one that had the reference to the case in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to where um, I had the scalding case. And the two young bank robbers, Pinky is one nickname and the other is called the Piper, and they're sitting in a yard at the Terminal Island Federal Prison, which is in Long Beach Harbor, and they've been mentored by uh, a professional longtime bank robber who finally got caught, and he's known as Fast Eddie. And Fast Eddie, every day after work, has been teaching him the uh, eight rules for being a successful bank robber. And so after getting the eight rules, <laughs> and we'll, we'll pick up that story. So we have Eddie, Pinky, and, and uh, Scotty, who's the piper, in the yard at Terminal Island. Fast Eddie's eight rules for success, intoned Scotty. Eddie, 
How did you finally get caught? The rules didn't fail me, if that's what you're wondering. My luck just ran out. I'm in San Francisco, and I just robbed the first interstate bank. I've got my escape planned, and the robbery went fine. I'm in and out in under two minutes. Fast Eddie, remember? I've got one block to walk to the bus stop, and I'll be in the clear. Unbeknownst to me, there's a liquor store holding hold up going on up the street. The crook runs out and runs right over the top of me. We both drop our bags and soon we're fighting over all of the cash on the sidewalk. About that time, the police roll up. What are the odds of that? Eddie hung his head and the conversation paused. Then he eyeballed the silent pair. Okay, what happened to you? Scotty spoke up first. I got caught on my first job the Bank of Idaho in Boise. I had to wait in line. When it was my turn, I'd go up to the window and there's this old bag of a teller. Glasses, iron gray hair, no smile. I pass her my note and I was shaken while she read it. Finally, she looks up, stares at me with this hard look and starts shaking her head. I tap the note with my fingers like, pay attention to this. She looks bright in the eye and calls out, Next, sweet as you can be. Scotty rubbed the back of his head, clearly agitated at the memory. She's not taking me seriously at all. Like she's my third grade teacher, I just told her that my dog ate my homework. So I lean over the counter and reach into her cash drawer and start grabbing the money myself. She slams the cash drawer on my hand. I scream and pull out my busted hand and about a hundred bucks in bills. As I run out, I dropped all but $40. When I got pinched a block away, I'm still holding my hand, crying like a baby. It was a mess. Eddie just smiled and looked out towards the harbor. I guess it's my turn, and Pinky raised his hand up and out as he grinned in advance of an apology for the fiasco he was about to admit. I started in Spokane, my hometown. I was robbing the Washington Trust Bank. I passed my note in a brown paper bag. I was trying to keep one eye on the teller and another on the lobby. I looked away for just a second and when I looked back at the teller, she passed me a brown bag and I I ran out. I got around the corner to my girlfriend's car and we got away. When I opened the bag, the teller had passed me her sack lunch. I got a banana, a bologna sandwich, and a package of ho-hos. Two days later, my girlfriend gets popped in the car and she gives me up so she can get off on a misdemeanor possession wrap. Eddie shakes his head and paces a fatherly hand on the shoulder of each con. What a pair you are. But hey, it's not your fault, Eddie laughs. You were probably not breastfed or you were toilet trained too early. Maybe you didn't get a hot lunch in school. Exactly, replies Scotty. We're just victims of social forces beyond our control. All three break into laughter at the sound of their own bullet. Oh my gosh. Stuart L. Scott, that is wonderful. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. The robberies are all true. Those were all cases to where I did the sentencing report. Of this book, that wonderful was... (laughs) That was very good. Well, thank you. <laughs> so you do have very different writing where you can bring the hum- the humor 
as well as the very seriousness and the romance. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And Stuart L. Scott, I thank you. And you have a glass business where you blow you blow your own glass. Um, slumping and fusing. So slumping, it's, it's a little, little bit different. This is kiln work and torch work as opposed to blowing glass involves big furnaces and it's really an industrial operation to where among other things you have to have a non-combustible building and you will also have um, the fire marshal's number on speed dial. Oh, so what okay. <laughs> I'm doing is something that's a little bit more accessible at the hobbyist level. So I'm able to do it here in a glass shop right behind our residence. Well, and I love the glass. I, are, are these books available on Amazon? They are available okay. on Amazon as ebooks or print copies. Okay. Yes. I will have a drawing for one of your books. Well, thank you. And I, oh, I very much appreciate hearing from the listener with any comments they had so that perhaps I can get better at my craft or share some uh, inside details of some of the stories, whatever they choose. And whomever does win, I definitely will send them the email with, with your comments. And I'm sure he or she would be listening anyway. So, yes, Stuart, again, thank you so much. This has been incredibly delightful. It has been very enlightening and insightful to the services that you've provided for so many years in so many different ways. Thank you for your positive imprint. My pleasure. Well, thank you, Stu, for sharing your successes as well as your struggles. I certainly enjoyed my time with you. Well, head over to my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can view photos of Stu's glass artwork. He's incredibly talented. And you can also sign up for email updates from me. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at yourpositiveimprint. Twitter at What's Your PI. Music for Your Positive Imprint is performed and composed by Chris Knoll. Chris is John Denver's former pianist as well as the pianist for many other artists. Check out his website at chrisknoll.com. Well, I have a winner for a signed copy of Stuart's Prisoners of War book, and the winner is Daniel. Daniel is a social justice parochial school instructor. Congratulations, Daniel. I will be in touch. Well, thank you for listening to Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Please subscribe to this podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Subscribe now.